Hello, and welcome to Justice Spec, a podcast about the protocols, the projects, and the people who make the open platform of the internet possible. I'm your host, Jared White, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to my other co-host, Ayush. Hey, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. I'm, I'm recording this episode on a brand shiny new uh, M2 MacBook Ooh. Pro. So, yeah, delighted nice. to finally upgrade after six years. So, yeah, very happy right now. Proper <laughs> Apple fanboy in this moment. I was wondering why you were coming through in like HD video here in the Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll Got be why. Got an upgrade. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I um, because my only Mac at the moment is a desktop. It's a Mac Mini. The only way I can ever get video is if I attach my external uh, camera, which is actually a really nice camera. It's a Nikon ZFC. So it's, you know, it's a new fancy mirrorless camera. It can do 4K, it can do all this stuff. Um, but the setup of like plugging it in and turning it on and making sure it's on my desk and blah, blah, blah means I don't actually use it that often as a, as a webcam. <laughs> um, but if I, but if I need a webcam, it really works. It's a rather overqualified webcam. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is a podcast, so nobody cares about what things look like. They only care about how we sound. So hopefully we're, we're coming through loud and clear. Um, a couple of housekeeping notes before we jump into the main topic. Uh, we do have a website now. It's at justaspec.show, and that's spec, S-P-E-C, justaspec.show. Uh, it's a very simple website right now. We'll be doing something fancier later on, but for now, it works. It'll have the episodes up there. Um, and we're also in the Fediverse, so if you uh, want to follow us there, you can follow at justaspec, at intuitivefuture.com. And we'll have links to all this in the show notes. Uh, so we thought today it would be fun to kind of just go full bore into CSS, the history of CSS, a little bit of history around some of the tooling around CSS, uh, some of the new cool stuff that's in CSS today, and what's coming down the pike. Um, real quick, I just wanted to share uh, a really funny thread from Zach Leatherman, uh, who uh, he, he, he's, he's known for his wit, to be sure. But this was, a, I think, a particularly insightful sort of uh, little message here. Uh, basically, he writes, Step number one, hire someone that's good at HTML and CSS to build components independent of JS frameworks. Lots of clapping emojis. <laughs> Step two, plug components into a JS framework and layer on behavior later. Step three, pay HTML, CSS devs what they deserve for giving part of your code base longer shelf life than unpasteurized milk. <laughs> uh, so we'll have, we'll have a link to that, but I, uh, I got a kick out of that. Yeah, that's brilliant. What a brilliant way to, to phrase that. I love the, the response from um, Aaron Gustafsson as well. So Zach was asking if um, anyone had any ideas to brand this kind of method. And um, Aaron replied saying, um, making adaptive components and creating healthy engineering ecosystems saves everyone. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to figure out the acronym for that on your own because it is absolutely brilliant. And I, know I was chuckling for quite a while when I read that. Yeah, we won't spoil it, folks. So uh, go take a look. <laughs> All right. So uh, how shall we begin uh, history of CSS. Uh, 
I actually shockingly knew very little about this. I was kind of realizing like I, it just kind of appeared at some point in the distant past and I was using it. And I had no idea where it came from. <laughs> How about you, Aish? Yeah, I, I um, didn't really know much about the history either. Like when I first dabbled in, in um, HTML way back in school as part of my school curriculum, we used to just um, inline styles, and apparently that's come back into vogue, but we'll we'll address that later on. <laughs> we used to just like write stuff like body BG color equals whatever, and you had stuff like the marquee tag, which I used to get a good kick out of. Um, so there, I, I, like when I first started with the stuff, styling was very much part of the document itself. And then about 10 or 12 years later, when I came back into it at university, CSS was just a thing. So uh, I didn't really put much thought into it at the time, but now I was quite um, ignorant of the history myself until we started preparing for this episode. So uh, might be worth doing a quick summary of how it all began. Uh, yeah, so there's an article over at the W3C, um, uh, someone uh, by the name of Hoken William Lee uh, first proposed what became the CSS spec um, but it was actually one of several proposals, right? There are there were lots of different ideas floating around of of how styling could be done, how it could be written, what the relationship it it has is with with the document. Um, and as you were saying, like very early on with HTML, it, there were all these attributes and tags that directly affected the appearance of things, right? Like we had a literal font tag. And you'd wrap some text in a font tag to change the font and change the size. Like if you wanted a bigger font, right? You're, you're using uh, all these tags for that stuff. Um, and people had the wisdom to realize that this was unsustainable, right? It was, it was mixing uh, what we call presentation logic with structure and content. Um, and that's why you really need this separate language. Um, but uh, it was interesting to, to see kind of how, how some of the different proposals and specs were, were jockeying for, for favor. Um, but it seemed like CSS won out in large part because of the C. It wasn't just a style sheet. It was a cascading style sheet. So what does that mean, cascading style sheet? Uh, how, how would you explain that Aish. Uh, so I'd say that uh, you, what it means is you can define a set of styles at a top level which is kind of like um, a general set of rules and then um, for smaller specific parts of the page you can override those general rules as uh, maybe the requirements so that way you can um, make like very fine-grained adjustments to the the look of your page without affecting like the wider system that's used to define the look and feel of your web page or website and i think that's one of the most underrated and one of the most powerful features of css is the fact that it it cascades because it just opens the door up to um a consistent and logical design system and I know the, the concept of a design system is fairly new, but um, the fact that we have CSS around, I think, makes the execution of, of uh, such a structure a lot easier 
than if you couldn't go and um, override rules um, at a fine-grained level. You know, as as the years have gone by and folks have worked on larger and larger web projects and larger and larger teams, um, you know, we've all gotten bit by the weird things that can happen with, with the cascade and with uh, specificity. <laughs> I can't believe I said that right the first time. Uh, specificity. Um, <laughs> uh, the specificity wars. And, you know, I... I even today, I literally just saw a toot earlier today, someone saying that they were looking at their CSS uh, file in production and realizing that there was uh, bang important at the end of almost everything. And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> what have we everything done? Everything is important, uh, <laughs> then nothing is important. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, so I think like it's it's common to hear the complaints about the cascade and cascading the cascading nature of style sheets, but that that really was a feature and not a bug, as they say, and it was in, in, integral to the formation of the specification. Um, but uh, certainly there were many things missing from the specification at first, and I think like some of the things that folks knew were missing and kind of expected would get added later, it took a long time, right? And I, you know, I think a lot of the pain of folks early on trying to to use CSS was in part due to some of the limitations that just never got addressed in time. And maybe now they're finally getting addressed, which is awesome. Um, but certainly one of the most popular sort of advancements for folks working with style sheets was the arrival of SAS. And I think a lot of people probably never at this point they they've they never learned css before sas like they use css as you use it with sas and that's just because sas has been so popular uh, it first appeared in 2006 it was designed by hampton catlin caitlin catlin sorry i should have looked this up but uh, uh designed by hampton and developed by natalie weisenbaum and it it feels like it it sort of quickly just took over everything, right? And Bootstrap was was certainly a factor there and Foundation and these other uh, sort of proto-design systems that came out that folks could just adopt. Um, you know, uh, they used SAS or, or one of its competitors like Less, but then, you know, again, eventually SAS just kind of won out and became ubiquitous. Um, what are your feelings on SAS? What, what's your history there, Ayush? I have used a little bit of SAS, and uh, I think a lot of modern CSS, I think, is a direct result of SAS. I don't think we would have uh, some of the features that we have in modern CSS, which uh, I'll get into in a bit, um, if SAS hadn't pioneered these things uh, way back when. And I think it's a, an absolutely brilliant um, uh, project and highly innovative. Uh, I absolutely love it. I haven't actually needed to use it much recently because uh, I returned to web development from mobile in 2020 and um, I used SAS for a couple of projects and then um, actually that's when I discovered Bridgetown and started working with you, Jared. And my, <laughs> one of my first contributions to Bridgetown was um, how to add an alternative to SAS called post-CSS, which is another thing we'll discuss shortly. 
So well, once I kind of discovered that and discovered the power of modern CSS, I was like, I don't think I really need to use SAS anymore. But uh, I think the biggest innovations that have come in CSS, like um, variables and um, nesting, which is on its way, I think they're directly credited to the thing that SAS uh, implemented in the mid 2000s. Like variables, I think was a game changer. Having um, variables in CSS, it just let you deduplicate color, it let you deduplicate uh, uh, stuff like margins and padding, it let you do math, let you do all this stuff um, within CSS or, or SAS itself. And that was immensely powerful when CSS didn't support all that. Um, and I think uh, inspired by that now, we have native variables in CSS, which also cascade themselves. So you can actually change what a variable is within certain scopes, which is absolutely amazing. It's so useful. Um, you have the calc CSS function, which lets you do all kinds of crazy calculations. You can mix different kinds of units, like you can uh, add M's and viewport widths and crazy shit like that. It's it is so powerful. Like you can, you definitely can do that with a preprocessor. And um, I think this is all thanks to SAS that we have these features. So um, I'm immensely grateful for everything that they've done and the influence they've had on CSS. And it's kind of sad that, well, it's, I guess it's it's sad, uh, it's bittersweet that um, CSS has now become so good that SAS is a little irrelevant in my opinion like especially with um, native nesting coming down the pipeline which uh, has a slightly different syntax to SAS nesting which makes it uh, incompatible and I'm, I'm disappointed that SAS have decided not to support native CSS nesting uh, but I can see why they wouldn't do that because it's just subtly different and it would prove too painful but I think that's also meant that SAS now is not a technology that you'd use on a greenfield project. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, I was I was a little bit perturbed by their announcement there as well because I I feel like the the strength of SAS has always been that it's a it's a quote superset of CSS, right? Like you could start a SAS file and write nothing but pure vanilla CSS, and presumably that would just work. And maybe there's always been some weird little things there that I'm not aware of that potential incompatibilities, but my assumption was always that if I write CSS in a SAS file, or, you know, the there's, there's like a little syntax thing there, right? Like the SCSS extension is what looks like vanilla CSS, but they also have had the actual SAS syntax, which is more like YAML or HAML or one of those indentation-based uh, syntaxes, um, which I've I've never really gravitated towards. I've always used the just regular CSS-looking syntax. Um, but anyway, my assumption has always been that you just you can write CSS there, and then when you need the SAS features like variables or special ma uh, math or you know conditionals or whatever, uh, that just works right, and this feels like the first time there's just a fundamental disconnect between the vanilla approach for nesting and the SAS approach. And so I can understand them saying, you know, it's going to be kind of a bumpy ride here for a bit. There's going to be an upgrade path eventually, but we're not there yet, etc. Um, 
but at the same time i feel like they their sort of trepidation was was far too overblown like they just flat out said until there's at least 98% browser support you know out in the marketplace like it's near ubiquitous we're just not going to bother to support it which i found really strange because it feels like now sas is making a decision for me i'm unable to make for myself and this is kind of a theme of our show, right? Like <laughs> if you get yourself locked into these certain frameworks or these certain tool chains, you now have to adopt their decision making. It, it becomes increasingly hard for you to make your own decision. Like if I decide I only care about 80 or 90 percent market share for browsers to support native CSS nesting, give it to me now. They're not going to let me do that. And I feel like that's unfortunate. Um, nevertheless, like the fact that we're getting native CSS nesting is certainly because so many people have used nesting in SAS for so long and that developer experience has been so proven. So, you know, they definitely deserve our respect for, for paving this road. But yeah, some of the other stuff you mentioned about how, uh, having variables was a game changer. And I just, I remember back on, you know, when I first was able to do that and just the idea that, wait, I can just define a color once. I can just define a font size once. <laughs> I can, you know, pull down something like Bootstrap and change how their card looks or their alert looks just by changing some variables. This is incredible. <laughs> and like, it, it really is hard now to imagine the days before any of that was possible. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly was a game changer at the time. Um, so much so that when native CSS variables, uh, aka CSS custom properties, was first announced and started to roll out, I didn't get it, right? I, I totally, I missed the memo at first with that. I was just like, okay, it's a native thing now, but like I'm already using SAS variables and that's cool. So like I probably don't need to switch anytime soon, right? Like I already have a whole thing set up here and it's working. Why would I use anything else? Uh, until I realized that oh, wait a minute, CSS variables are very different because <laughs> this isn't happening at compile time, right? Like there's not a set of variables that have been compiled down to their values and then shipped to the browser. That step of resolving those values happens at runtime, which means you can, in your browser, in your inspector, in your dev tools, change, you know, some, you know, change primary color from green to blue and poof, everything on your site updates <laughs> and everything downstream that's calculating things based on that variable is is getting updated in real time, uh, which which is in itself, I feel like, a game changer. Um, and then all the ways that you can override variables at different scopes, right? So you could have uh, a variable at the top of your document be one thing, but then at some point down the road, override that variable to be something else. Uh, and you can even do that inside of the style attribute, which itself is kind of a game changer. Um, so yeah, so the current state of CSS giving us these these kinds of features that used to require a preprocessor uh, is is very exciting. Yeah, it's um, it's absolutely brilliant, and I think uh, we have as much as uh, preprocessors are um, kind of like vendor lock, and if you use them we have them to thank for the current state of CSS. And it has gotten to the point where using a preprocess is almost unnecessary, but uh, 
I just want to take a moment to mention post CSS here because I briefly mentioned it earlier, which is kind of like a preprocessor, but but not really. So what it does is let you um, let you assemble a build pipeline using like Lego blocks in a manner of speaking. So like let's say uh, you only want certain uh, pre-processing features so like let's say you only want nesting you can find a post css plugin that lets you do only nesting in a certain in maybe the non-native way if, if for some reason you want that um, and you can add that to your build pipeline and you, you have just that and then you can remove just that feature when you no longer want it you're not locked into sas and everything that comes with it uh, so you're kind of like building your, you're almost your own CSS dialect using Lego blocks. And there's some stuff built into it, uh, into post CSS as well that lets you use next gen features or uh, unlock next gen features of CSS um, and nesting being one of the things. And that's really useful because uh, you, you that lets you kind of use um, features that are coming down the pipeline that may not quite be fleshed out for native browser use but you can use them in your projects and obviously there's a risk there because if the specification changes or something you're a little screwed but uh, it's much easier to address it uh, if you're using these next gen specifications that are still a bit murky rather than use uh, a completely third-party tool that then compiles down to CSS uh, as it exists at a certain point in time. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of post CSS. It's basically what I use in all my projects now. I just turn on some of the features um, coming down the pipeline, which I like, and, and that's it. And then I think when those things get baked into the browser, I'll just be able to bin post CSS completely and done, no preprocessor at all. <laughs> Looking forward to that day. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've actually only been using post-CSS myself for new projects for probably a year or two now at this point. Um, I still work on projects that use SAS, but I never reach for that on, on new projects that I'm starting. Um, and I, I think their initial pitch for post-CSS was kind of along the lines of Babel for JavaScript, this idea that you use tomorrow's syntax today, <laughs> you know, like we'll look at these emerging specs and proposals and build a pipeline that lets you write those now and we'll compile it down to something more widely compatible. And over time, you can keep updating your configuration so that more and more stuff doesn't get transformed. More and more stuff can just use the native syntax, you know, full stop. And then, you know, browsers will have support for that. Um, I think at this point, I've seen a little bit of iffiness there with post-CSS in the sense that like some folks will write plugins for upcoming proposals and specs, and then those proposals or specs come out that have some changes, and the post-CSS plugins don't necessarily update, like maybe the maintainer just abandoned it, or there's now a new plugin written by someone else to do that, but it works a little differently somehow. And um, so, yeah, so I'm I'm still overall pretty pro post-CSS, but I'm also just starting to get to the point where I just wish I could write CSS, man. <laughs> I just, I just <laughs> yeah. wish I could write, just look at the spec. <laughs> oh, this is what CSS does. Write that, ship that. 
why do I need anything else? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, it, it's good to have fewer moving parts in your tool chain, isn't it? Just uh, as close to native as possible is always good. Yeah, like I, I'm trying to think of the things I still absolutely need. And it's it's a vanishingly small list. Like I still think I really want variables for media queries. Like it kind of sucks to hard code, you know, 640 pixels or something rem or whatever instead of using variables for those. Um, I still can't quite make out why that hasn't been added to CSS by now. Like, I feel like everyone would want that really bad. So, yeah, but uh, man, like there's just, I, it's like one or two or three things at most now that I feel like I would need a processor for. And otherwise, I just want to go all vanilla. Yeah, we're nearly there. Just a little bit more time and I think so close. we'll be... <laughs> um yeah so some some new stuff some stuff coming down the pike let's get into that real quick before we kind of round things out and i also want to make sure we leave some space to talk about kind of the elephant in the room which is tailwind um but before we get to tailwind uh just some cool stuff that has been rolling out or will soon roll out um Cascade layers have just arrived, which is pretty interesting stuff. It essentially lets you sort of slice up your CSS architecture and get out from under a lot of the specificity wars. Um, And uh, that deserves a whole episode on its own, really. But I'll just point you to a video I produced a while back about cascade layers. Uh, There's a link to that in the show notes. Um, There's also a really cool podcast just called the CSS Podcast, which is from Adam Argyle and Una Kravitz. And, um, you know, they work on a lot of these specs and promote stuff for for browser vendors like, I believe, Chrome. They they may actually be both with with Google. So, um, yeah, they have a whole episode about cascade layers and about some other new stuff that uh, has been really cool. Um, so there's that nesting we talked about the the has selector is pretty exciting stuff uh, it's been called the parent selector but I think some people just call it like this oh, now I'm forgetting there's there's another word for it now but it, it essentially if if you ever wished you could style an element by what it, one of its child elements happens to be this is for you right and my favorite use of this so far as I've started to experiment with it is if a form field is invalid, right? Like if, if it's an in, an in an invalid state because it failed validation, you can like draw a red border around a parent container or, you know, shade the background or do something on that parent container based on its child elements, this, this form input being invalid. And there was just no way to do that in CSS before. Like, there literally was no way to do that. You'd have to add like a custom class or do something, uh, you know, through JavaScript or through your backend to, to you know, to, to add styling hooks to that parent container. But now with has, it just works. <laughs> yeah, I think another use case off the top of my head is for, for empty states. Like uh, if there are no rows of something so on your server, you don't need to do if this is present then render this else, render there are no things. Uh, you can just render both and then use the has selector to hide the empty state message if there's actual content. So that just simplifies what you're doing on your template on the server as well. Oh, that sounds cool. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, 
Yeah, and I guess I guess you should be able to use has with not as well. Like instead instead of styling a container based on some matching thing in a child element, you could basically do the inverse. Like if if there's not some matching selector for a child element, then style the parent this way, which is kind of mind bending. So yeah, should be able to do that. Won't know until we try it, but good idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, the um, another cool thing here is uh, container queries, and um, pretty much landing everywhere at this point is the uh, sort of media query style container queries, and this is where you can uh, change the styling of of say components based on where they're placed on a page rather than the whole viewport, you know? So if you want to, you know, rejigger some stuff in your grid, like instead of that only happening because your entire viewport is a certain size, it can now be like, well, what's the container it's sitting in? What's that size? And between this size and that size, do this or that, uh, which is pretty cool. But I'm actually waiting for what I feel like is an even cooler sort of container query, which is... Uh, actually based on live styles and this works with css variables as well so you can actually say in a container query like if a css variable has been set to this then you know trigger these styles uh, which essentially turns css variables into like big theming logic gates if you will like you can switch on and off you can toggle on and off all of these different theming sorts of things just by setting a single variable which again hasn't ever been possible before uh so that's that's not really in widespread availability yet but we're getting there so that i'm really excited about that cool and um yeah, you've got something about new color spaces as well. So there's something with gradients and uh, wide gamut color spaces, which looks really cool. But yeah, I don't really know much about this. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I don't know too much about it either, to be honest. I've not used any of this stuff yet in production or really played with it too much. But um, there's a really cool site out now called gradient.style. Uh, again, from Adam Argyle. He's he's been on a tear. He's also the open props guy. So like, there's just a lot of stuff that Adam Argyle's been putting out uh, for CSS. But uh, this lets you play with all of these new color spaces. And I think the one most people are talking about now is OKLCH. Um, and essentially, it's just it's kind of getting away from like RGB and sRGB and getting into these other ways of defining colors, which let you access a much wider range of colors. And you can display colors that, um, you know, work on like the best displays, right? Like if you have a new iPhone or iPad or a lot of Android phones now and a lot of computer monitors and just there's a lot of displays now that can support wide gamut color that can support HDR. And you can now have access to all of these color spaces in CSS. And they're particularly exciting when it comes to gradients. Because if you create a gradient from one color to another with just standard RGB or even like HSL or something like that, um, it can get really muddy and really boring and kind of like, blech. like, you know, you go from, you know, say green to blue or something and get brown in the middle or whatever. Um, 
And now you can create much more vibrant and exciting gradients uh, just with CSS. So um, yeah, I feel like once this really rolls out everywhere, we're probably going to all of a sudden see like these super bright, crazy Technicolor looking websites, which may or may not be a good thing, but um, it, it is a fun new toolbox to, to play with. Yeah, I think whenever something new like that comes, uh, it always leads to a small period of madness. Like, do you remember web design in the late 90s when everything had a drop shadow and there were all <laughs> kinds of colors everywhere and it was just, it was a bit mad, but we grew out of it. So we might have another phase of something like that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Or do you remember HDR photography when that first was a thing and you'd see like these like super dark blue skies with like halos around everything because it was just like the contrast levels were too off and it looked really crazy. <laughs> uh, yep. But yeah, so um, man, I like there's there's just so much stuff coming down that we haven't even gotten to. So I'm sure there will be many follow up episodes where we cover some things, but um, kind of a meta, kind of a meta narrative that has arisen in the last few years is is sort of this duality we see where some folks are really gravitating towards, uh, you know, what has been called classless CSS or like just coming up with really really good defaults for your document through a global style sheet, uh, and then just being really careful to kind of just style individual components from there, and you know, scope styles in various ways, and you can, you know, you can do that with more traditional means, or you could even use your shadow DOM and web components. So I feel like there's this world where, like, you could create a pretty compelling website, maybe even a pretty decent application just with a classless style sheet and a bunch of web components like shoelace for example um and then there's this very different approach right <laughs> which is like utility class all the things atomic css tailwind being the you know the big the big the big papa framework in this space uh and some folks swear by tailwind and only want to style things with tailwind and Basically, the pitch for Tailwind is never write a style sheet again, right? Like throw away all your .css files or SAS or whatever it is. You don't need it. We're going to put all of our utility classes just directly in our HTML and and you're done. That's how you style things. Um, isn't that something that sounds like uh, something that a snake oil salesman would say? Never do this again. Look at my brand spanking new uh, solution that I've come up with that'll solve all your problems. It just sounds like so much like a snake oil salesman. And um, You know how you had all those problems with the cascade with specificity? It's gone. We just removed it all. Never worry about it again. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, if it isn't completely obvious, neither Jared nor I are particular fans of Tailwind. But Ooh, yeah. uh, I, I, I actually have to use it every day on a, for, for a client of mine. So safe to say that um, I have some thoughts on the topic, and I'm gonna get this out of my system. Once Take it away, long. Ayush. Take it away. I'm gonna I'm gonna channel my inner Roy Kent, and I'm gonna get this out <laughs> of my system. Right. How the f*** have we as, a, as an industry got to the point where we turned every single f***ing style rule into a class and then inline them in HTML, turning it into f***ing gobbledygook and horizontal scrolling hell 
and this is considered a great idea? I mean, for f**k's sake, like, you have to make Tailwind something resembling usable. You got to pair it with some kind of component system, like, I don't know, like React or, or if you're using Rails, something like View Component or something like that. And that just blows my mind because the web already has a component system. It's called HTML tags. Or if you want something shinier, web components. It's literally in the name. Like, why the f*** wouldn't you just use something that's built into the platform? And, you know, dry, uh, don't repeat yourself, which is considered to be generally a good rule. That's out of the f***ing window because let's repeat every single f***ing style class on every single element that looks the same because that's a fantastic idea that'll always end well. Like, f*** me, man. Like, Tailwind, it's just like CSS, <laughs> except it doesn't cascade and it's not in sheets. Like, I f***ing swear, Tailwind is only more popular than vanilla CSS for the same reason chips are more popular than salads. One tastes really nice and is really bad for you. One doesn't taste so good, but is really good for you. <laughs> right. Can I breathe? I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to throw it over to you for something slightly more articulate and fair, probably. Well, I've I've been pretty vocal as well. And I must say, I actually wear this as a badge of honor. But back in my Twitter days when I was there, I, I literally got blocked by Adam Wathen, the creator of Tailwind. And yeah, and here's the weird thing. Like, I never really had any kind of exchange with Adam in like a truly adverse way. It was really sort of roundabout. Like I increasingly was writing articles about Tailwind and talking about Tailwind. And I was doing it kind of from a defensive posture of like, whoa, folks, like I have some concerns with Tailwind and there's some things I really don't like here. And anytime I ever vocalize these concerns, I get attacked by like what feels like a mob of pro Tailwind, like almost like cult-like behavior of just saying like, I'm a moron. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm saying all this wrong stuff. I wasn't. <laughs> they were like mischaracterizing my points and throwing all this crazy stuff out there. And I got increasingly frustrated by, by that. And at the point where I started writing about these frustrations and really trying to make some points, then that got shared around a bunch. And I suddenly discover at some point, like, oh, Adam blocked me. <laughs> just flat out blocked me on Twitter, uh, which apparently he was doing regularly for pretty much anyone who's critical of Tailwind. Um, so I, th I would say at this point in time, I try not to expend too much energy getting frustrated with Tailwind. I'm more frustrated by that community. I feel like the pro Tailwind community, and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of developers out there who are just kind of somewhat agnostic about this and just use it for purely practical reasons. And if something else came along that convinced them that it was better, they would happily switch to that or whatever. Um, but this like community of folks who are like, Tailwind is the future of styling and this is how web apps should be built. And people just trying to write vanilla CSS don't know what they're missing. And I promise you, if you'll try Tailwind, if you'll just give it an honest shot, you will discover that it's the best thing since sliced bread. And I keep telling folks, I've been there, I've tried it, I've used it, <laughs> I've built products with it, and I don't want it. <laughs> and it's like, how can you say that? Um, 
So yeah, it it's it's a bit strange and you know, again, like there are there are very enthusiastic developer communities of all sorts out there. I'm sure there were some folks back in the day who tried Ruby on Rails and didn't like it and then got a bunch of Ruby on Rails fans telling them like, "Oh no, you, Ruby really is the best. Trust me, you got to do it." But uh, I don't know. I feel like even other things I've been critical of, like React, of all things, like I, I just, I've never gotten such pushback like I've gotten through Tailwind. It really feels like this unique phenomenon, and I don't fully understand that. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit strange. I think it's always um, good to be wary when a tool like this has such a cult following, like. It's a tool to accomplish a job. It's not it's not that big a deal, honestly. Like I don't know why it has such a big emotional reaction that uh, of either love or dislike. Like I mean, I say as the person who just went on a long rant. <laughs> but uh I think it's just if there was a little bit more balance to uh, the proponents of this framework where they would say, oh, you know, we really like it. Maybe it's not for you, but we think it makes us really productive. Give it a go, rather than saying like the approach that you just described, where oh, if you just used it, it would solve all your problems. It just comes across as oh, uh, because I like it, it, uh, it must mean everyone likes it, and if they don't like it, they're wrong. And I don't think that's a particularly good um, attitude in general to have with any just I think in life in general to be honest I was going to say in, in software development but I think people's brains work in, in different ways and, and that's okay some people might like one thing it's fine sure sure and my my sort of final word on the matter because I really don't intend to, to keep writing about it but um, I, I wrote an article a little while back called the three laws of utility classes um, and it was sort of a way for me to sort of intellectually try to find a way to have our cake and eat it too, right? So I I kind of tried to say like, hey, if we must have utility classes, okay, but maybe we establish a few ground rules. And I think kind of the, the, the biggest point I want to make there is make it really easy for folks to have an escape hatch, right? And I don't mean Tailwind's weird thing of like you write at apply and put in a bunch of Tailwind class names and it somehow magically turns into CSS. I mean like, you know, have something where if you've written a bunch of utility classes in your project for one thing or another and you want to convert that into a real style sheet with real vanilla CSS, like provide the tooling to do that. Uh, and I tried to build a little experimental tool to do just that with a tool I called Vanilla Breeze. <laughs> um, it It's kind of half working right now, so I, I, I need to give this some more attention. But if you go to vanillabreeze.dev, and I think it's still working in Chrome and Firefox, uh, there is sort of an experimental example there of how you could take some HTML with some utility classes in it and turn it into an HTML which doesn't have any utility classes in it and a style sheet which will style things in much the same way and it uses CSS variables for all of Tailwind's theming stuff Um, and you know I don't necessarily expect people to like use that all the time in production but I want to illustrate that like it is possible to conceive of a world where you can prototype with utility classes if you like doing that but then convert to something that's more maintainable and more production ready and more compatible in the future 
forevermore, right? Because <laughs> CSS is not going anywhere. We can't say the same for Tailwind. We have no idea if Tailwind is still going to be around in, in any of the sort of form we see it today, you know, in another 10 or 20 or whatever years, whereas the promise of, of web specs is that they're evergreen. You know, whatever is in CSS today should pretty much function as is 20, 30, 40 years from now, uh, you know, with, with other new goodies along the way too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, so the first time I ever used Tailwind was actually on uh, with the client I'm currently working with. And I picked it up really fast because I have a solid base in CSS because uh, I'd only used vanilla CSS up until this point. And I think therein lies the advantage that if you're familiar with web standards, you can pick up all these frameworks very, very quickly. But if all you knew was Tailwind and suddenly you had to go and write CSS, it's very hard to go the other way. So I think if you bet on the web standards, you'll always have the skills to do the job you have to do with whatever tools are at your disposal. Um, but it may not be the case if you limit yourself to um, a single framework. And to kind of wrap up the discussion on this topic, I just want to say that I kind of, I kind of get the feeling that CSS is treated like the scary monster in the closet of web development. I think developers are quite happy with HTML-ish. Uh, and like rendering or server-side rendering or whatever else, all the other parts of web development, except CSS, which for some reason scares them. And I think if you just give the language a little bit of respect, like you would to any backend programming language, like learning the structures and how to name things and structure things and organize things, like you would learning any programming, programming language. I think if you give CSS the same effort and respect I think um, it would pay dividends rather than trying to find a shortcut like use um, a framework or something like that uh, or buy something from someone who tells you or oh, I've solved CSS, just use my tool. Uh, I think that that's a very short term way of looking at it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, CSS certainly has shortcomings. There are certainly plenty of foot guns and things that can trip people up. But, uh, you know, it it is a real, and I'm, you know, putting quotes here because like, you know, whatever that means, but like, it's a real programming language, just like JavaScript is a real programming language. And just like HTML really is a real programming language. Yes, I know it's a markup language and uh, it's a, there's these distinctions that people make, but like. It's, it's a declarative <laughs> UI programming language. That's what I call it. <laughs> yeah, right. So so for for someone who's who's trying to you know with good intentions uh learn the ropes learn web development learn some html learn some css learn some javascript like those those are the three legs of the stool right that you take one out and the whole thing gets lopsided uh and i i feel like that's all kind of obvious and straightforward but somehow it gets lost in a lot of these conversations uh and that's that's a bummer but um but yes, we're we're very excited about where CSS is headed here on the show. Uh, so much cool stuff coming out now, and um, certainly lots of fodder for future episodes. Any last words, Ayush? <laughs> no, I think uh, <laughs> that I think came out really... weird. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll edit this out in post. <laughs>
Um, no, I think I've said everything I had to on the topic. I've got all the rants out of the system. <laughs> you you channeled your inner Roy Kent uh, as much as could be expected, for which we are greatly appreciative. Uh, but that's it for today's episode, my friends. Thanks for tuning in to Justice Spec. Uh, as mentioned at the top of the show, you can find us at justaspec.show, and we're in the Fediverse as well at justaspec at intuitivefuture.com. And until next time, bye bye, everybody. Goodbye.